And they'd fly to up to 10 towns a day. He'd give speeches, he'd shake hands, and they would fly off to the next town. Sometimes they landed on the edge of town and sometimes right in the center, um, right by the city hall or the county courthouse on the street, um, at least once on a roof. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to episode 50 of the Rotary Wing Show. This is a show where we try to capture some of the stories, the history, and the best practices in the helicopter world. And as you kick back and listen to this, know that you're joined by hundreds of people just like you all over the world, all keen to learn more and to make the most out of our industry. It's been a bit of a gap since the last episode. A couple of you have been giving me a hard time in a, in a friendly way and poking me for more interviews. So I'm working really hard to get a few things off my plate so I can put more time towards tracking people down and getting them on the, the show for you. I really do apologize if you have messaged me and I haven't responded. Life has just been uh, super busy, but uh, I'm getting back on and uh, I'll try and get a response back to everyone there as well. So thanks for bearing with me. Now, the big thing that's happened since our last show, of course, was World Helicopter Day in August. If you've been following along for a while, you would have heard me uh, plug that or push it on social media. And this year, we had 12 venues around the world take part. So that was a, a lot of fun. Here in Brisbane, we had a big turnout with about 400 500 people over the course of the day come through our hangar and check out the different machines on display. And our local rescue helicopter, a AW139, was able to stop in, give people a chance to, to look over at the you know absolutely amazing medical fit-out that they've got in the back of that thing. It really is a, a mobile intensive care ward. The crew at Capital Helicopters in Quebec always put on an amazing day too and, and photos that they put through there's a you know a wall full of kids coloring in drawings of helicopters that they had as an activity which really captures the aim of the day in that it's you know a, an excuse to get members of the public and especially kids in to see helicopters that they might not have a chance to do otherwise a huge thank you to everyone that was involved and if you or your company your organization didn't take part then I'd poke you to get involved in 2017 for the third year of the event and make an excuse to invite your local community in to see what you do and to look around the hangar. If nothing else it's free publicity and at best it promotes our industry as the you know incredibly important and very varied one that it is. You can get all the details for that over at worldhelicopterday.com. How would you rate your knowledge of helicopter history? I've got to admit, my knowledge isn't that uh, that great. I know bits and pieces, but honestly, most of my exposure to helicopter history has been via the internet or, or TV reruns. There just isn't that many of the early model helicopters uh, here in Australia to sort of be able to experience them firsthand. I know Bell 47s operate in Korea because of MASH episodes. And really, anything pre-Vietnam film coverage is, is pretty hazy. In today's interview, we get to hear from the author of a book called The God Machine, From Boomerangs to Blackhawks, The Story of the Helicopter. So James R. Childs has been writing about 
science and history since 1979. He's a member of Invention and Technology Magazine's editorial advisory board. He's published features and columns in publications including the Smithsonian, Aviation Week, the Boston Globe, Invention and Technology, Harvard, the New York Daily News, New York Post, Air and Space, Popular Science, Texas Monthly, Engineering, uh, Mechanical, and the Science Digest. James's particular niche is as a, a science and technology writer and researcher. He has written about many aviation and engineering disasters and given safety-focused lectures at a, a who's who of professional organizations, including NASA, the U.S. National Society of Professional Engineers, the U.S. Defense Nuclear Facilities Safety Board, Lockheed Martin, and the U.S. Chemical Safety Board amongst others. I opened the interview by asking James about his first helicopter experience. Uh, the first helicopter trip I was in was during the New York World's Fair. Uh, my folks took me to the uh, fair, um, and on that trip, we made a a jaunt in a, um, it was a tandem helicopter from one he airport to the other. I don't recall if we were on top of the Pan Am building, but we made a short hop in a tandem helicopter during the fair. And so that, that was the first of various uh, passenger ride-alongs. Um, I jumped out of a helicopter with the L.A. County Fire Department when I was doing an article on fire rescues and firefighting. Uh, they put me in on a wetsuit and had me jump in a lake. And after that, uh, just whenever I had the opportunity and it was pertinent to the article, I would ask to ride along. So that's where I caught the bug, I guess. Okay, and you obviously jumped in and did some training yourself. So did you get all the way through? Have you got a license? Or was it just, a, again, part of a research for articles? It, it was really research for the article. Um, eight hours and a Schweitzer 300 and at a helicopter training school in Minnesota called Hummingbird Helicopters. So um, John Lancaster, the instructor, just kind of walked me through the basics, and, and uh, I did not solo. Uh, and a couple of times he was there, and it was a good thing because I didn't have it fully under control. So I was told by pilots that if you have that ability, that you know, at a certain point it becomes natural something like riding a bike but i didn't get to that point but i did get enough for the process of the book writing all right we'll, we'll head back to helicopters shortly but uh, i just want to ask you about the you've been in a, in a, a b2 bomber simulator can you tell us the background how'd you get into, into that <laughs> uh sure um, about the b2 simulator i've done three articles at whiteman air force base for a magazine called air and space um, in and around Whiteman, mainly about the B-2 stealth bomber and its pilots and its maintainers, its bomb loaders. And the last trip um, about the kind of the elite crew, that was the angle, um, they lit me into the simulator, which, of course, the flight deck just has two seats, both in the simulator and in the real airplane. And so uh, it's a very secure facility. Even the captain who was uh, escorting me they had to check his credentials and we of course had to leave all cameras and cell phones behind because that's where they trained for uh tactics you know all the way up to a nuclear war 
so it's it's considered a pretty secure facility. But it was really interesting. Uh, I wasn't able to mate up with the tanker, but um, flying it around and even landing it uh, wasn't that hard. But boy, joining up with the tanker that was hard. Yeah, I can imagine. All right, well, so let's talk about um, the book. Is obviously called the God Machine. Where where did the origin of of the God Machine come from? Was that something you made up, or is there is there a reference in uh, literature somewhere? Yes, it's a reference to the machine, which was a mechanical lifting arm used in Greek theater, and it was based on a device used for building construction, uh, something like a boom arm that you see when they're making movies. You know, there's a short stretch with a counterwave and then a long stretch that you can put things on, like cameras. Um, and the machine was used in Greek theater to move actors around, um, namely those who were going up to heaven or who were coming down from heaven like a god to rearrange things in the plot. And you may have heard that cliche, the deus ex machina, the, the sudden rescue at the end. Well, that Machina, that refers to the Mahane. In fact, that device, that rescue device used in theaters, that's the origin of the word machine. And so when I uh, used the term God machine, I was thinking of how often in movies and even in real life, the helicopter is that thing that swoops down to uh, either vanquish the enemy or vanquish the good guys in movies or to rescue people. So that's why it struck me that uh, when you regard what helicopters can do, that is such a rare thing that rescue function. Well, the God machine seemed to fit. Oh wow! Okay, look, I never have guessed that. I thought it might have been a Leonardo da Vinci type thing, but um, also okay. That's a bit of trivia to, to lock away. And okay. and Jimmy, you've obviously you know you've written about uh, airlines, uh, engineering, cranes, you know, a huge range of sort of science things. What was the thing that made you sit down? Because you've written a couple of books, but what made you write a helicopter book? Uh, that's a great question, and I can tell you what it is. Uh, and that was 9 11. Um, I had finished up my first book, Inviting Disaster, um, shortly before uh, the 9 11 catastrophe at the World Trade Center and uh, in the Pentagon in Washington. And after the book came out, of course, I was reading the accounts like everyone else and became interested in that question of the North Tower. Was helicopter rescue possible? Um, and there was a good deal of discussion at the time with the New York Police Department's aviation unit, the Wall Street Journal articles, lots of armchair quarterbacks saying, why didn't the helicopters come in and make an attempt? Um, and there was one portion of the North Tower at the World Trade Center that was free of smoke. So I just, you know, read into that and was curious because I knew there had been helicopter rescues going back for decades, some of which worked and some didn't. And just that whole notion of what was possible, uh, the pilot's judgment. And I came away convinced that the pilots did the right thing. There was no reason to take that risk. And ultimately, the pilot has to make that call uh, without uh, fear of second guessing later. Uh, they're in the air. They've got lots of things on their minds. Uh, they've got smoke to deal with. Who knows? Maybe other airplanes coming in. So they made that call not to attempt to uh, hover near the northwest corner of the North Tower, and there wasn't anybody on the roof anyway. So anyway, that that's subject. What can helicopters do? Why do they do it? Uh, that intrigued me, and 
So I started reading up on the helicopter history, realized there wasn't any book about it. I thought, gee, uh, there's an opening. I will do that. Excellent. Okay, well, let's dive into some of the history stuff and, I guess, work our, our way forward. But uh, part of the notes I've seen, you know, you're talking about this vision of a helicopter displacing the family car, and I'm, I'm picturing this 1950s-style newspaper advert, uh, you know, with a futuristic uh, family and the helicopter parked in the, in the driveway. Right. And it sort of just didn't, uh, didn't quite work out that way. There were many hopes after World War II of private aviation, whether that was... Um, short takeoff, something like a Piper Cub uh, or a larger four-seater that could take off in a 40-acre plot on the edge of a suburb. But what really got people going was the private helicopter that would fit into a garage. And so the Optimus, and there were at least four major companies and a lot of smaller companies, thought that too, that you'd have well-trained, tough pilots and also mechanics who could easily become pilots after the war and with money they had saved up during the war because there wasn't much to buy. Gosh, you turn those people loose and you've got everything you need for the home helicopter. And there were people like Stanley Hiller who had that on his mind and he came up with a counter-rotating coaxial because that avoided the risk of tail rotor. So that was one reason he worked on that um, counter-rotating helicopter so that you wouldn't, uh, it would be easier to fit into the garage and you wouldn't have the tail rotor clashing with things or chopping people up, and that's still a risk. The tail rotor is always a risk. He had the, and Hiller, he came up with this uh, uh, jet-powered rotor-tipped helicopter made a tremendous amount of noise. It was easy to fly, and it didn't need a tail rotor either. Boy, was it fuel-hungry, but that's the one that's often pictured as sliding into the garage, and that was called the Hiller Hornet. I talked to people who flew that thing, and they said it sounded a lot like a Boeing 707, although it just seated two people because it had these um, ramjets, one on the end of each of the two rotor blades. So there was lots of work on that all the way through the early 60s. You had Optimus. Uh, let's have a helicopter in almost every garage. But and whenever people looked at it in detail, they couldn't figure out how was this going to work. Um, one of the points I try to make to people who, who ask about that is there's a difference between a gadget, that would be the personal helicopter, and the whole system that makes it work, meaning uh, like the system, where would you put all those helicopters if you flew them into Manhattan? How would you keep them from running into each other? Because if it's good for a few people, well, the magazines say it's good for 100,000 people. How is this going to work? Yeah, how's it going to scale? So that's a, it just, uh, it was a fun time and people had that notion and it just took reality to deflate it. But at the time, you know, why not check it out? A lot of the, the cultural knowledge yeah, so my, my age group going through, you know, it, it starts at the Vietnam War is kind of as far back as a lot of us sort of think about in terms of, you know, when helicopters start to to think we think about you know movies and culture and things like that. Going back yes. be, before that, you, you know, you sort of occasionally come across your black and white photos uh, and things like that. But the the earliest helicopters, can you just talk a little bit about the the first sort of breakthroughs or the first helicopters that were actually functional and, and could actually be called helicopters? 
Sure, there's the Falka Wolf um, that was used mainly as a demonstrator all the way forward from the late 1930s. Um, as much, I guess, as, as a demonstrator to say what might be possible in the Nazi regime. Um, every so, so attempt that Nazis wings? made... That was the, um, it, had it was a side... The, the Falka... It was... Um, let me see if I can look up the... Uh, actually, it was the Falka Agelis. Um If you want, I can look that up. Um, that's the one that uh, Hannah Reich flew for uh, for the Hitler regime. Um, anyway, the, uh, I can just summarize what the um, Nazi regime tried was a side rotor tandem helicopter, and they tried to evolve that into a cargo carrier. But the only successful helicopter that actually flew and found use in World War II was from Sikorsky, the R-4. Quite underpowered, but it did carry off some rescues in Burma. So, and that took four years to really come to fruition, which I guess illustrates the point, and certainly Igor Sikorsky found this, that every time you solve one problem, there's another problem that looms, or maybe two more problems, because the machine is so dynamic and inherently unstable. So he would solve one problem and then have to deal with another. And so some people on the inside who were funding him, helping out at the Navy, were surprised it took so many years to get that small helicopter working. But I think Igor was not surprised. That's the single main rotor design, which is so common today. And Sikorsky had that remarkable confidence that he could solve that when everybody else had been going toward the uh, side loader designs because it seemed like more, a more common sense approach. And Sikorsky thought, no, let's do the tail loader, let's do the single main loader. And I and my team will be able to overcome these many strange phenomena like the gyroscopic effects and uh, a harmonic that would develop that would threaten to shake the helicopter apart. He just, uh, it was pretty amazing how he was able to work through things that nobody had ever seen or dealt with before and got it flying by 1944. And that, James, how did you go about the actual research? Like, were you going to, you know, state libraries to research things? Did you travel around? Were you interviewing people? Uh, how did you go about piecing all the, the history together? And if Nick and one, I can just quickly, there was the Falka Wolf 61 that was the first flyable helicopter, the side rotor that Hannah Reich flew actually inside a exhibition hall. Okay. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So 1938 was a first public demonstration. Uh, the question on the research, uh, yes, um, there's so much available um, as any writer or researcher would know. It's like an avalanche. You pull one stone out and it starts to fall on you. And, but not all of it is on the internet or even in the libraries. I took that on as a personal challenge to chase down the two originators of the first flying helicopter model, these fellows, Lenoir, Indian, Camus, in pre-revolutionary France. And so that kind of thing is not on the internet anywhere. But there are people who, in Paris and elsewhere, who knew the archives and could help me chase down who these people probably were. But the research, also, you want to go up there and hang with the people who really know the subject. And I call them 
great sticks. That's a term pilots use for whether somebody is a good stick and then there's the great stick. So I, in my research, as I met these various pilots, including at the 160th SOAR, the Special Operations Aviation Regiment, spent some time there, I would ask those fellows, who is the best pilot you ever met? So it's like a, like a ladder, like climbing up a ladder, like I'd start at the bottom and work my way up. And they would give me suggestions about who to talk to. If those fellows were still alive, then I would find them, and some of them would have been the Far East that I could locate by telephone, and just get their stories, you know, the great sticks, and one of them was Link Luckett, who pulled off a rescue on Mount McKinley at Denali that most people would have thought quite impossible at 17,200 feet with a pillar 12E, single main rotor, one of Stanley Hill's helicopters that had no gas turbine, wasn't turbocharged. Um, Nobody would have thought you could rescue somebody at 17,000 feet with such a helicopter. But Link pulled it off. So those kinds of, uh, that's, you know, that's the sort of stair step. I wanted to talk to uh, Chuck Tamburo. He's the fellow that did the stunt in Terminator 2, where he flew under a bridge. Um, that was supposedly a helicopter was being flown by the bad one. Yep. And that's, uh, that was the, the days of real stunts. It wasn't done by computer. It was done by a real fellow. So, I mean, it's just a, a combination of reading lots of books and uh, mainly going out into the real world and finding people they could and and uh, flying with them as a passenger, uh, just listening in on the intercom. And, and uh, you know, when I uh, flew in the North Slope with a, a very experienced pilot, just listening to him uh, was very informative. He said he flew around lakes because he didn't want to crash into a lake you know, if the engine quit uh, on the north slope because nobody would be there to help him. Um, so he'd fly around the lakes, and well, that's pretty interesting. He, he was very fastidious when he started the gas turbine. Always used a timer, even though he had started gas turbine engines all the way back to Vietnam, no doubt thousands of times. Uh, he always used the timer and was very, very fastidious uh, in his procedures. So that impressed me. You, know, you kind of think of an old hand just cutting all kinds of corners you know, like some barnstormer, but not him. I mean, he's very thorough. That's how probably how he uh, got to be an old hand. Yes, that's quite right. Okay, and I think you went up in a, in a uh, you did some power line uh, work, or you, you sat yes, back and um, was with a yes, I was um, a, a fellow named Mark Campalong, uh, and their company allowed me to go along um, in the Appalachians. Um, this is in Pennsylvania. Um, then they were maintaining a live 230,000 volt power line. Um, and that's not that uncommon these days where a power company wants to keep the equipment running because it's too expensive to shut it down. And so Mark's company, their job was to fly up there alongside the power lines and reach out and replace spacers that keep the uh, closely packed uh, lines apart, keep them from bumping into each other. Uh, the spacers are, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 inches across. And um, it's in some respects easier to do it by flying alongside them than it is to shut the line down and use a snorkel truck. But of course, you have to be pretty careful because he was using a, an MD500 and the tail rotor on that side and where Mark was, um, the tail rotor was pretty close to the 
cables. We're about 100 feet up. And so if there was a problem or if the engine quit, you can't auto-rotate you know, from a hover at 100 feet and just go in and crash. Uh, so he had, this is kind of funny, he, he had a military-style uh, crash seat. And uh, I was in the back with a plywood seat. So I can think about later that, you know, I, I wish I would have had one of those uh, crash absorption seats. Uh, but I was lucky to get up and see this at all because you know, not many people have had that opportunity. And they would just fly for three or four minutes. Uh, then they'd go back and refuel. So I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. They, they carried little fuel on board. And I think one of the reasons was if they crashed, they wanted to minimize the fire, and also they wanted to keep the weight of the helicopter down. So there was a platform, a fellow would work on the cables, uh, and Mark would uh, uh, pay a lot of attention as he hovered alongside within about, I don't know, two feet of the power lines, uh, you know, because there's wind up there, of course. And, um, I thought it was funny. He said his mother-in-law would ask him why he was so tired at the end of the day. She said, all you do is sit around. <laughs> so maybe she should have flown with him and she'd understand that that's not something you take lightly. <laughs> no, that's pretty unique. And in your travels, like, what are some of the strangest uses of uh, helicopters that you've seen come up in, in the history and the research? Like One of the ones that blows me away is uh, I've seen a, a K-Max carrying a demolition ball. And uh, it was basically acting as a, as a crane and getting a bit of a swing up to knock down a uh, big uh, brick chimney. And uh, that's, wow. that's the first time I've seen that. That's kind of pretty unique. But uh, I don't know. What, what, sort sure of, what sort of things did you come across? Well, one of the striking historical uh, side, you know, side stories that didn't happen was called the suspended maneuvering system. Um, where Various large city police, I'm sorry, large city fire departments requested McDonald Douglas to work up a powered platform that could be hung by cable from a twin engine, uh, something like a Black Hawk, you know, the um, H60 would need to be twin engine in case of engine out. It would be a platform with a, a couple of ducted fans um, that could be controlled so the thing could move around at the end of, you know, think of a cable that's maybe 400 feet long with the helicopter high up. And they would use that for rescuing people out of skyscrapers, you know, in the case of a high-rise fire, which Los Angeles had had some of those. Um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, had had a couple of really bad ones in uh, 72 and 1974. So um, McDonnell Douglas, uh, like a good soldier, came up with this and Actually, it was this prototype, and the uh, L.A. Uh, fire department had it available for, I want to say, for six months, and then nobody ended up buying it or using it. But it was, it would have been helpful uh, at 9-11, but gosh, you know, it's hard to keep something like that around when you may only need it every 20 or 30 years. But that's kind of an example of, um, of uses that... Um, could have happened and didn't. You know, you might say the whole helicopter history is in many ways. It's got all these branches of alternate history. One of them, one of the uses that didn't happen, but that Igor Sikorsky was very excited about were these modular, sort of like a bus-like compartment that would fit underneath the sky crane. Of course, the sky crane was still in very wide use and, and Ericsson um, out of Oregon, so the licensee and, and makes them still what used to be called the Sikorsky Sky Crane. But, you know, it has that dragonfly look, and the notion was it would carry these big, like, surgical unit containers or uh, headquarters or uh, repair shops 
Uh, and Sikorsky thought, well, this might be great for moving people around the cities because, of course, that's what many expected, that you'd have, if not personal helicopters in cities, you'd have commuter helicopters, which didn't happen very much. Um, but you would, you'd have these passenger compartments, and they would use them, the carriers would use them in the morning and the evening, and then the sky crane-like helicopters would go and do cargo work. You know, whether it was wrecking balls or lifting air conditioning units. And at the end of the um, workday, when commuting started, they'd get their passenger compartment and go pick up people from the rooftop. So you know, it still seems to make a lot of sense, but it, it didn't really happen. And the closest to New York, when you came to commuting, were these uh, tandem helicopters that flew from some rooftops in some airports. So, I mean, the uh, it, it is interesting to think of all the applications helicopters have uh, found that most of them have been for small groups of people or for lifting cargo to high places. Uh, you just can't beat them for that, particularly uh, air-conditioned units, sections of towers, uh, you're real good at that. You know, long-lining, this notion of moving stuff around. Um, occasionally it goes wrong. It was a case in helicopter history in Vietnam where helicopter was bringing a rotor blade on sling, and it uh, got to waving around and came up and actually looped up and landed in the main rotor. Um, I guess they should have thought, well, if you're hauling a rotor blade, you know, that thing is an airfoil. And, is, uh, uh, it will not act <laughs> like a lead Lots of blade. stories about uh, <laughs> yeah, aerodynamic loads and boats and, and uh, sure. slinging airplanes and all this sort of gear. Exactly. It's, it's designed to fly and uh, give it yeah, enough airflow. Yeah, it to fly. All right, if we uh, if we dive back just to a couple of um, stories from history, then and if we can sort of uh, just fill them out, because a lot of these, you know, as I was putting together notes, are things I've never come across before, and, and again, most people listening to the show won't have heard some of these uh, sort of incidents or stories before either. So, if we go back to 1948 and talk about the Lyndon Johnson uh, Senate campaign as, as one of the right. you know the first introduction, many people would have seen a helicopter. Can you just flesh exactly. that out and sort of explain what happened and and I guess you know how that sort of spread the the uh, the distribution of helicopters and, and people getting an exposure to it. Sure, it was Lyndon Johnson's air assault on Texas, and at that time Lyndon Johnson was a congressman, and he decided with very little time to spare and. May of 1948, when he had to win a runoff election uh, within three months, he decided he would run for the U.S. Senate against a very popular uh, opponent. And he, after some, plus he had a um, very serious illness uh, to deal with, so that gave him even less time. He decided at the urging of a couple of his advisors that a helicopter would be the way to reach central Texas, rural Texas, in a way that nobody had ever uh, thought about. And that was a Sikorsky, theoretically a five-person helicopter he started out with, and he went to a bell. Um, so he was able to convince Sikorsky and later Bell to offer him a helicopter at very low cost, perhaps no cost at all, because the helicopter companies saw it as great publicity, and it certainly was. So the what happened was over the space of weeks, um, 
Johnson and a loudspeaker. I'm sorry, Johnson and a loudspeaker were aboard the helicopter with a pilot, sometimes an aide, and they'd fly to up to ten towns a day. He'd give speeches, he'd shake hands, and they would fly off to the next town. Sometimes they landed on the edge of town, and sometimes right in the center, um, right by the city hall or the county courthouse on the street, um, at least once on a roof uh, in a town near near Houston, Texas. And it wasn't easy flying because this was summertime, and um, it was pretty heavily loaded given the the size of the engine and the size of the helicopter. These weren't very advanced, certainly just you know, piston engine uh, helicopters. Uh, had a few close calls that could have changed history, uh, settling with power in one case. Uh, but they avoided hitting anything, and uh, it, the helicopter was a big reason why Johnson was able to win the, um, to get a runoff election and to win that. And then once he got the nomination, he was sure to win the election because he was a Democrat at the time and and the Democrats were sure to win the general election. So his whole job was to win the runoff, to get that close and to win that. And he did. Um, And he developed a lifelong, Linda Johnson developed a lifelong love of helicopters um, all the way to the end of his life. He was uh, talking about them and uh, he had a heliport built on on his library in Austin, Texas, had the post office, um, had a teleport put on top of that. So he had many happy memories, particularly of the Bell crew uh, who helped him out. Uh, that was their second helicopter to come into Texas. So um, particularly since he didn't crash, he had many nostalgic, happy memories. Um, maybe he set aside the whole experience in Vietnam, which ruined his presidency, you know, helped dominate by helicopter. As far as Personal transportation, uh, I would say Johnson, loved those machines. Because there was some commentary there that people who, especially initially, who were turning up to see him were mainly coming to see the helicopter. That's right. They had never, some of them had never even heard of it. And when they came after Johnson had arrived, they were convinced the machine had come on a flatbed truck. And so they would wait around and say, okay, where's the truck? I know you guys didn't fly this thing here. This can't possibly fly. I'd never imagined such a thing, but, but he would urge them and the pilot would say, you'd better get back because you want to see it fly. You know, you'd better get back because it'll be awfully dusty. And, um, and they realized that, yes. <laughs> uh, we don't want to get close to that uh, machine. Let's see. All right, let's, let's jump down to, uh, to black helicopters, sort of a, the enduring uh, you know, uh, conspiracy theory of black helicopters. Uh, but uh, in one of your articles I've read online, you talk about the, the CIA helicopters in Air America. In uh, Is it Laos? Uh, right. They, they've, in some cases, they would fly into uh, North Vietnam, but mainly what they were doing was serving bases around Laos, um, secret bases. Um, and so the one that I wrote about um, was the base of operations for a flight into North Vietnam to tap a uh, telephone line uh, run by the North Vietnamese army. Um, and so that's, that was a, you could say, a, well, it was a black helicopter in the sense that it only operated at night and it was meant to be stealthy. It's uh, called the 500P, Hughes 500P penetrator, very specialized model. Um, but I was told that that 
didn't really catch on because its performance was pretty low. And although it was extremely quiet, it had very little lifting capacity. But it's a little bit hazy on how much they continued to use stealth helicopters. And, of course, within Laden Raid, there was some kind of stealth technology. Probably not the best uh, that SOAR has, but it was was stealthy. So, that, But the subject, if you're asking about the black helicopter fear, uh, white tanks and black helicopters. When I talked to a sociologist, he thought that dated to 1972 here in the U.S. Um, for several reasons. Um, one may have been concerns about the use of helicopters and riots in the 1960s. There was a spate of uh, cattle rustling that went on in the early 70s. And people just, and also, in fact, the Hughes 500P was being tested at that time. So who knows, maybe Somebody thought, oh, there's these quiet helicopters flying around at night in Nevada, in California. Maybe that's, that's that black helicopter I've been hearing about. That's where the, the legend began of uh, one that could supposedly hover in your backyard and look in your window. They were never that quiet. Uh, but now it's like the whole issue has is somewhat risen again because an electric drone certainly can do that. It can hover anywhere it wants and you never hear it more than 30 or 40 feet away. Um, but it, 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 what I wrote about was really the manned helicopter. Is it possible to have a super quiet manned helicopter that can fly anywhere and not be hurt? Well, that's not possible. Um, we're still working on that quieting. For those who, who watch a helicopter fly overhead, and they notice that it's pretty noisy when it's approaching, and then it starts to quiet once it's overhead, and then... Um, even quieter as it leaves, and, and that's because helicopters tend to throw noise forward uh, from the advancing blade tips, something like a loudspeaker. But it was interesting uh, looking into that subject of the 1972 stealthy helicopter. They were more advanced than I had realized when I had uh, when I started looking into the subject. They basically started with an RH6. What were some of the modifications that you can remember that they had on the on the airframe? Um, they made it a scissor tail uh, tail rotor, and that tended to reduce that whine of the rotor. They added a blade to the main rotor, and they were able to slow it down. Um, they added some baffles on the engine intakes, and the, I believe on the exhaust as well. Uh, they made a serious attempt to reduce the kind of drumming that you get from the uh, cowlings and the panels on the side. Um, and this is, you know, the, of course, the 500, the very familiar little bird type helicopter that, that people, they're still used, in fact, by SOAR and uh, a very nimble little four-seater. So it was a combination of uh, airfoils. They didn't use uh, what seems to hold some promise, which is um, little spoilers or kind of like tubes on the end of the main rotors that uh, the, the notion there is to break up the vortices that develop at the blade tips. Uh, you could make some real progress there by addressing the blade tips. Uh, that would help reduce the noise on the advancing blade. Um, but as far as I know, that's not in common use. And of course, if you put a shroud, you know, that's a general commercial solution. You put a, a shroud around the tail rotor, you can cut the noise quite a bit. Uh, the main thing is to reduce the RPM of the main rotor. Of course, everything you do typically uh, lowers its performance. So that's one point of tension between those who don't like helicopters 
uh, during residential routes and they companies that are flying overhead that they feel that I, if I keep doing this and addressing the noise complaints, I can't run my business anymore. That's a continuing source of tension, whether it's at the health work or along the path, the flight path. Yeah. I mean, who, who are these people who complain about helicopter noise? They must be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess if you live there, you might have a different point of view. So I, I, I did look into that a little bit, that history of helicopter ejections and, and certainly uh, those heliports that run in Manhattan, you know, they they feel they're under constant siege. So I visited uh, um, one of them in Manhattan. Um, in L.A., it's funny that you know, there's really no public heliport other than that at LAX airport. You have to fly through the whole swarm. Uh, and so Larry Welk, a pilot, uh, landed there. He had to clean off the camera of his news helicopter and just showed me how that was one of the few places you could land in a public heliport in the whole Los Angeles area that, um, of course, there are airports, but uh, as far as a dedicated heliport, there's one on the parking garage at uh, Los Angeles International. And so he wished there were gas up, you know, filling stations, um, as the original concept had been, that you could just land, fill up, and fly along. Well, that didn't develop. All right, let's jump to a, another one. Again, you know, something I've never ever heard of before, but there's a there's a picture of all these uh, TH-55s blown over in a storm. So the date on it was 1967 at uh, Downing Heliport. And, uh, yeah, uh, that must be the the single incident of the most helicopter damage ever I can think of. So it, it said, yeah, 100, 179 of these machines. So obviously, a, you know, massive training base. So this is the, the trainer before they went on to... Hueys and things like that. Right. Yeah. Do you know, right. anything, know anything else about that store? Well, I visited uh, that that area. It's Fort Walters in Texas, near Mineral Wells, uh, because I wanted to talk to the pilots who had trained there for the Vietnam War. And that's where a lot of great sticks came out of uh, Fort Walters, and then they went on to Fort Rucker in Alabama. So I'd say by most accounts, that was the greatest helicopter and perhaps the best helicopter training school in history because um, there were so many pilots that were needed for Vietnam. Um, so I, I really concentrated on that. There was a two-stage training process and Fort Walters was the first and they used piston engine um, helicopters. Later on, they would transition to the Huey at, the, at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And they, w- one of them was the what we now call the Schweitzer. Um, and so, yeah, a tornado came along in 67, and it didn't totally destroy hundreds of them, but it heavily damaged them. And, but they were able to get back in the air pretty quickly by having mechanics come in and fly all sorts of spare parts. Um, and what that, you know, um, some of them were Bell 47s, uh, there were some killers, but a lot of these uh, TH-55s, and, you know, the kind that I flew when I briefly trained. The, um, the idea was to get hundreds of people with experienced um, instructors, many of whom had flown in Vietnam, and just give them the basic skills, not tactical skills, but to make them comfortable, and particularly with auto rotations. So I guess what was so remarkable, the fellow said, is how many of them would rise into the air at the same time and then all come back at the same time. And they did that twice a day, plus there were some evening flights. So there were times where you'd have 
200 or more helicopters coming in, um, kind of like a line of cars uh, into these various heliports. And then uh, later on, they would take off in the swarm and go to training areas. They didn't stick around together. That would have been pointless and dangerous. Instead, they would go off to the different spots in the hill country and do their auto rotations or their navigation practice or um, low hovers. So it was um, it was an extremely effective course, the pilot said. There were, of course, some crashes, the more realistic the training. You always get some crashes, particularly with the full-down auto rotations. Um, so Wayne Brown, he was my guide. Uh, at that, he retired from uh, Bell Helicopters, a senior instructor, and he's uh, he trained Harrison Ford. So I figured he, he must be pretty good if the insurers would have him train Harrison Ford on yep. Bell Helicopters. Ford has a 407. So it just, you know, and he introduced me to other people, and it was just a lot of fun to go around those old sites and hear how they did it. And I've spoken about it in other interviews with people too, but yeah, it's just like a snapshot in time. We'll probably never ever see that many helicopters, you know, in one spot again. Uh, but it's just it's super impressive. When you look at those photos and see the, you know, the, the tarmac with that many machines sitting there. And uh, yeah, yes. again, the scale is just incredible. Okay, let's uh, jump forward again um, and talk about the India-Pakistan high altitude war. Uh, we're talking about, uh, yeah, basically on the mountain range, and the only way they could get up there was helicopters, and essentially they're taking pot shots at each other with artillery. All right. Uh, that was a continuing story of that war in Kashmir. Um, and you, it started when uh, Pakistanis and the Indians felt that each was trying to steal a march on them as far as claiming uh, this very high uh, mountain pass and glacial area with mountains at least up to 20,000 feet. So what developed was um, years of something like leapfrogging where they would use helicopters um, based on the Alouette to um, lift men and artillery to high places and then they'd use the artillery to shell each other, uh, trudging around in the snow and, and, of course, very deep snow in the high passes. So it was it was sort of a, not exactly a helicopter war in the sense that you didn't have helicopters shooting at each other. That's a pretty rare thing. But uh, depended upon helicopters to feed and arm the soldiers um, so they would each try to get the high ground. And uh, sometimes that meant putting a troop on a line and flying them over a ridge and basically just sort of dropping them off. And then the helicopter would go over the ridge, get some translational lift, and get another soldier and bring him up without ever trying to land on this ridge. So it pushed, pushed the envelope. Uh, of course, they had gas turbine helicopters to do that kind of thing. So it, it was a, a rare event, but you know that's what helicopter history is full of is in very remote places doing odd things. And I, I guess I'm hoping that's why readers find it entertaining and um, stuff they've probably never heard about. And they've seen them in movies, but the movies don't do justice to the machine or the people who fly them. No, it's very, very unique. And you would have met some, or you would have spoken to some pretty unique people along the way too. Is there a couple of standout people that you spoke to or interviewed that uh, are sort of larger than life yeah. and, and really stand out? Well, 
one of them was Guy Ballou, um, and he was one of those pilots that other pilots pointed me to. And as I recall, Cliff O'Brien with the 160th SOAR said, you should talk to Guy Ballou. He's one of those great sticks. He had been an, um, a little bird pilot in Vietnam, you know, not a stealthy one. Um, and that was under George Patton Jr. So that'd be General George Patton's son. Um, and so he was a, a recon guy, but also did air assault by himself. And his job was to go out and find the Viet Cong and NVA camps. And so it was just interesting talking to him about how aggressive he was um, in, in finding. So he would go out very early in the morning with his gunner and uh, look for traces in the grass um, that would indicate there were enemy troops in, uh, in and around the forest in South Vietnam. And uh, he would fly low enough that he could check the bomb craters for fish because he felt if there were fish there, there was probably a camp nearby. Of course, he'd look for traces of smoke. Um, and then often that kind of low flying, low hovering, would get him into a gunfight with uh, guys in the trees. And so he would pretty much fly with his knees or one hand and uh, use an M60 machine gun out the side, and then his gunner would have another M60. So he said one day he he lost three helicopters you know, crashed. So that was pretty amazing. But he came back alive and um, he was greatly respected by his men for just being uh, a guy that didn't stop at halfway measures. So it's kind of an illustration of how far you can take it in a place like Vietnam and uh, maybe an illustration of it. Yes, there are old, bold pilots, they don't always get killed by taking extreme chances. But I guess I, the big asterisk by that is only the extremely, extremely good pilots and and with some luck are able to pull that off. Um, the notion, often in movies, that a guy can just jump in there and figure out how to fly it and take off and do amazing things, completely bogus. So I just tried... I, I, played with that notion in the book about what if you really use it to fly your kids to school yeah. in any methodical way. And I realized that it's much faster to just walk your kids to school uh, than to fly them. And there were some attempts publicity in 1948 to fly children to school, uh, but it wasn't a good idea. No, the time you do your paperwork and get everything set, it's, uh, <laughs> it's just quicker to try to take the car. <laughs> Why bother, yes. Oh, you mentioned movies, and now, helicopters are such like a you know a go-to tool for for movie directors. You know, not just the filming, but you know, as a plot, uh, you know, as a plot sure. tool or a plot item. Have you got a favorite, uh, you know, fictional helicopter or uh, you know, use of a helicopter? The um, it started in the like the fifties that you had a whole uh, series based around uh, guys flying around in a. Uh, uh, Bell 47. Um, as far as a movie, uh, other than, I would say Blue Thunder, not that I particularly like it, but it helped cement the notion uh, in the public of the super quiet, stealthy, sneaky helicopter. So that had a big cultural effect. Uh, that's one where I believe it's Roy Scheider, uh, he's one of the pilots, and they're using a stealthy helicopter that can hover just outside of a skyscraper. Um, 
and uh, nobody could hear them. But they turned on the stealth mode, so that was pretty funny. Uh, a pilot that I talked to in, uh, here in Minnesota, the helicopter hospital pilot, said people still ask him, you know, why don't you just flip that switch, you know, yeah, turn on the stealth mode. He said, uh, well, you have, a few, you have to go to Hollywood for that switch. Um, here's one historical thing for those who uh, are interested in helicopter appearances in movies. It's a movie called Coogan's Bluff with uh, Clint Eastwood. And there's a scene early in the movie that shows the Pan Am heliport. So if there are actually times where movies are showing history because they didn't necessarily intend this, but they show it as part of the plot. Um, if you look at the first part of the movie where this uh, um, gun-toting detective arrives in New York, it's on the roof of the Pan Am building, and so you can see uh, some of those uh, helicopters and how they how the heliport operated. So that's pretty interesting. Oh wow! Okay, I'm just looking at time. I'll, I'll hit you for one more thing, and then we might uh, we might wrap that up then. Uh, Hank uh, Emerson, I believe he passed away um, a couple of years ago. But again, I imagine he'd be one of those characters that stood out. So uh, I think yeah. you got, you had a chance to interview uh, Hank. Yes, um, yes, I did, and and um, he wasn't a prominent figure either in Vietnam War at the time. There were magazine articles about him, but not like a high-profile figure, uh, nor really in books or movies afterwards. Um, that movie we were soldiers once. There were movies about various battles, um, but Emerson wasn't part of those. His um, his maneuvers, I guess, didn't make it into the movies because they didn't quite fit the narrative of a misguided, brave effort that wasn't all that well carried out. And that's what most Vietnam War movies, um, kind of like a misplaced heroism. Well, Emerson was a different kind of a guy, and uh, he was a student of war. Um, his father and grandfather had been doctors and they wanted him to be a doctor. He wanted to be an infantry commander and he ended up doing that. I served two tours in Vietnam. Um, so it's, it's just an amazing story of how he studied history and tactics. Um, and then he applied that to the terrain in Vietnam and had a totally different set of tactics in the central highlands than he did down in the Mekong Delta. And, uh, his, he was very emphatic that you only use helicopters when it makes sense and you don't use them as a crutch. And so in the central highlands to intercept North Vietnamese army units moving down from the border, um, he came up with this using the units called recondos so that he would place them so they could set traps for the NVA coming down from the north. And then, um, so the enemy would walk into these traps with claymore mines, and then also they'd be driven by uh, artillery emplacements, and the the area was marked off in a checkerboard fashion so that his recondos did not go into squares that were going to be targeted by artillery. So it was totally counter to the standard uh, Vietnam Army tactic, which was to send troops blundering out and hope they would find the enemy, and then you'd bring in airstrikes, and always with great losses to your soldiers who felt like they were 
sheep being set out to meet the wolves, um, the territory they didn't know and uh, tactics they didn't understand. Well, Emerson had a whole different notion, so he called that the checkerboard, and it was really quite effective. And down in the Mekong Delta, he used a completely different tactic. So the, the checkerboard didn't rely very much on helicopters, although we had them available. Uh, the men walked around and used radios and uh, fire bases that supported them by artillery. But down in the Mekong Delta, he used helicopters very extensively to to circle the enemy, get them out of their bunkers, and uh, kind of corral them and uh, give them a chance to surrender. Um, and he had a lot of respect for the Viet Cong commanders. He had placed a great deal of value on human intelligence and a great deal of value on highly trained uh, commanders that reported to him. And, uh, um, and that's an example of what I talked about, the system. Uh, everything worked together so that you could corral the enemy into one place and then hit them with airstrikes and artillery, but give them a chance to surrender. He always did that. And so it, uh, it was remarkably effective in areas that seemed to be completely controlled by the Viet Cong. Uh, he turned that around. So that's a pretty amazing performance. My main point in the book was that he was a guy that understood you don't just use the gadget because you have it. You think about the terrain, uh, what your resources are, what the enemy, and you think of it all as a system, and you only use the gadget where it makes sense. That's Emerson's magic. And Jim, is there a favorite piece of helicopter trivia or a story that um, we haven't covered uh, today? Well, I, I think um, um, if if people were to look at the book, just that the tour of the helicopter, uh, particularly those who aren't pilots or mechanics, so they, that when I'm talking with John Lancaster uh, and just walking around the Schweitzer, that would, you know, help them. It would be a good introduction, you know, things like the importance of the drag uh, damper. Um, it just it's an introduction to people about it's a dynamic machine and ever so much more complicated in many ways mysterious than a fixed wing plane. I mean, there are mysteries that can be solved, but it took years to do that. That would be a, a way for them to not just get the trivia of the helicopter, but how all these pieces work together. So it's sort of a, a tour of the Schweitzer 300 helicopter with my instructor. So that would be a way for them to uh, get some trivia, but also understand the machine. And if they're interested further in the book, uh, there are many stories that include those pieces and parts, uh, like the drag dampers. All right, and the book it's called the uh, the, the God Machine. And online, uh, James, what's the, the best places for people to to go and get more information and see some of the photos? Well, uh, the best would be my website, my website, uh, which is just thegodmachine.us. And uh, it's also available on Amazon, things like that. Fantastic. Look, it's uh, it's always great to talk helicopters and hear stories and especially some of the things that uh, are a little bit further back in history that often, you know, the chain sort of breaks. They, they, they don't get passed down um, and they right. sort of start to, to filter away and get lost. Uh, so that's great that uh, you've been able to capture some of those and be able to share them. So thanks very much for, uh, for your time. Well, thanks, Mick, and happy flying to you. <laughs> Cheers. Beautiful, just beautiful. Oh, beautiful, was it? God damn it! I had another stoppage. Controls your 30 million candle power night sun with a heat sensitive infrared filter. 
Over here is your TV camera with a 100 to 1 zoom lens. Could have used this in Nam. Hmm? Could have used something. Do you think you can fly it? You flew it, didn't you? The audio you just heard then and the music before the interview was from the 1983 movie Blue Thunder about an armed police helicopter fitted with the famed whisper mode that James mentions in the interview. That's a a very snappy comeback by Roy Snyder's character when asked if he can fly it. Airbus has videos online of their Blue Edge swept back rotor tip design which aims to reduce the sound of the main rotor. It's probably a long shot, but I wonder if the engineers were giving a nod to Blue Thunder's whisper mode when coming up with the name Blue Edge. If you visit The God Machine, that's all one word, thegodmachine.us, you can find out more about the book and James' writing history and see some of the photos. As usual, on the blog post for this episode at rotarywingshow.com, I've collected a few related things if you want to dig in a little deeper. So along with a link to the book, there is a, a black and white silent video of the research facilities used in the design of the Sikorsky R4, which was mentioned in the interview as the, the first production helicopter. The video shows some of the, the really early test equipment and, and wind tunnels. In one part, they're actually dropping sawdust down on top of the spinning rotor to be able to visualize the airflow. There is also a link to James's article on the quiet modified Hughes Little Birds used by Air America. If you've told someone about the show and the podcast, thank you. It really is just word of mouth and the inbuilt iTunes search allows people to find out about it. If you do see a post come through on your social media streams, then if you think it rates a share, then that really does help. A quick review on iTunes gives some great feedback too, which might help out down the road in terms of sponsorship and being able to keep the episodes coming more regularly. That's it for this episode. Please keep your suggestions for guests coming in. And fingers crossed you'll see more of these coming along very soon. Today's episode was sponsored by Arkansas Helicopters based in Springdale, Arkansas in the US. The team at Arkansas Helicopters offer private commercial instrument and flight instructor training in their fleet of R44s. There are several financing options available if you're looking at training that they can help you out with. They also run tours and operate joy flights from many of the state's affairs. If you'd like to find out more, you can chat with Brandon or Cameron and all the contact details you can get on the Arkansas Helicopters website at arhelicopters.com.